0: Right, okay. Well, thanks very much for choosing this seminar. My name is David Montgomery. I'm the director of Christian Unions Ireland. I uh, used to be known as IFES Ireland, UCCF. Uh, the work, uh, we coordinate the work in all the Christian Unions and the campuses throughout Ireland, from uh, Cork to, to Coleraine. And I'm also a little bit involved in um, uh, IFES Europe, which is our parent body. So uh, I'm a little bit aware of some of the issues that... Uh, some of our colleagues face, uh, particularly around the, the Mediterranean. Uh, so this is uh, this is something that I've just given a little bit of thought to. It was a, a seminar that was originally given at the Urbana conference in St Louis, in America, which is the big world student gathering run by the United States IFES group. Um, and uh, I'm not sure why they asked me to do it. Maybe they thought that the Irish had plenty of experience of emigration. But uh, it got me. It got me thinking. Uh, so uh, rather than change the background, uh, they had a very clear um, template for my slide. So rather than change that, you'll see Urban on the top corner. I've, ch- I've adapted things a little bit, but I thought clarity was better than change. So I've kept the template uh, for that. Uh, It's an issue, I guess, which I had not given much thought to uh, until uh, recently, uh, until I was forced to look at what the Bible had to say about this issue. In fact, I remember my younger days uh, being reasonably attracted to, if you like, what we would call maybe right-wing politics, the idea uh, that somehow um, open immigration and that sort of thing would would somehow damage our way of life and that we needed to protect our borders. It wasn't until I started looking at what the Bible had to say about that that I realised how mistaken uh, that notion was. The statistics change every week. Uh, Certainly a couple of years ago there were already a million migrants a year coming into Europe Uh, and it's a global phenomenon. Uh, We would be familiar with uh, this gentleman here, uh again, the story here changes every day, never mind every week. Uh, but there's a very big paradox, isn't there, between uh, Donald Trump's uh, famous comment, I will build a great, great wall along our southern border because walls work. Uh, and even within his own country, the famous statue uh, of liberty, where inscribed on it is Emma Lazarus's Stonnet, the New Colossus, which said, um, uh, beside whose beacon beacon hand glows worldwide welcome, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these the homeless tempest-tossed to me, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Fascinating contrast, isn't it? But this seminar isn't primarily about foreign policy, about home policy, whether of Britain, Ireland, the United States, Eastern Europe, wherever. It's about where we must start in thinking theologically about the issue. How does the nature and character of God impinge on this issue? How do we as Christians respond in the light of the issue and in the light of his character? So if you're coming looking for practical ideas as to how you can minister to migrants on your doorstep, then this seminar is going to give very little of that. There's plenty of other places you can look for that in the exhibition hall. A lot of the societies and a lot of the mission organisations that are out there are doing great work with migrants at home and throughout the world. And I would commend that to you. And I'll say a little bit about that at the end. But uh, the purpose of this seminar uh, is to give us a foundation as to why we should be involved in it. And so, is this an issue, a crisis, or is it an opportunity? Some would see it as a crisis because of economics and infrastructure. Mass migration places an intolerable burden on some countries' infrastructure. For example, if you think of the areas around the large refugee camps in Piraeus in Greece, where one of my colleagues is working... Uh, or Calais and France, and the famous jungle there. And in poorer countries closer to the front line, places like Lebanon, again, where I have a colleague working in the refugee camps there. Massive uh, crisis in terms of economics and infrastructure. Then there's issues of law and order that are presented. Well, yes, while there are reports of some crime within refugee camps, it's no more than in any big other conurbation. The vast majority of folks who are migrating are vulnerable victims of war and crime. And the law and order threat tends to come not from the migrants, but from elsewhere, from the criminal gangs exploiting their vulnerability through human trafficking or racial tensions stoked up within resident populations or the gangs that are actually getting people onto the boats on the Libyan coastline and then shooting at the rescuers whenever the boats sink. That's where the real crime is taking place. But there's also a crisis of health and education. Temporary cities are rising up almost overnight without proper facilities to stem the spread of disease. My Greek colleague says that the first thing that the migrants ask when they go to these camps that they need to be provided for is not food or water. Very often it's things like sanitary products. Lack of toilet facilities has led to some areas of major cities being declared a significant health hazard because of the number of people camping out around railway stations, places like Stockholm, for example. Lack of education facilities for children some of whom may spend years in these temporary locations. And that has an effect. What, are, you know, what will the next generation be like if there, if there has emerged a, a whole generation of young children who have not been schooled or have been taken out of their schooling for years? National security, that of course has become the most common argument for stricter border controls. However, extremists are going to find multiple points of entry and are already present in our countries. We think of the Paris attack, we think of the London Bridge attack, we think of the San Bernardino attack. All committed by citizens of the country in which those uh, atrocities occurred. The problem of ISIS will not be solved by border controls. The only people who will suffer will be the innocent victims fleeing from ISIS and others. So should we rather see it as an opportunity? rather than a crisis, an opportunity for Christians to show love and compassion and to bear witness. As politicians struggle to find solutions to the very real problems, we can't be inactive as the people of God. It's our responsibility to show compassion, to give practical help, to bear witness in word and deed. If our focus is fear-based, if it's based on keeping people out, we need to ask ourselves, Are we like the priest and the Levite in the parable and passing by on the other side? Do we not want refugees to hear about and experience the love of Christ? It's fascinating hearing about the number of churches that are springing up in Lebanon among Muslims who are escaping radical Islam, but are actually finding out from the Christians in Lebanon, who are these people that are looking after us and they're turning to Christ? Is it an opportunity also for the church to be enriched? Local Christian communities are always enriched by diversity, and the international dimension of the church is a powerful apologetics Galatians three twenty eight in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. Stories emerge, as I said, of large scale conversions in these camps. Many of these refugees are our brothers and sisters, old and new. It's also an opportunity for society to flourish through integration, as it is for the church, so for society in general. Some of the most peaceful countries are also the most integrated and diverse. I lived in Canada for three years. Incredibly multicultural and a very uh, peaceful country as far as global politics is concerned. Monoculturalism or ghettoized multiculturalism where people stay in their own places diminishes the human experience. So what does the Bible say? Well, there are over 150 references to foreigners or strangers. Uh, The Hebrew word would be ger or nokri, and I'll come to those in a minute. And the interesting thing is that after the command to worship, the command to welcome the stranger is the most common command in the law. It is not a marginal issue. We look at the, uh, the Pentateuch. God's creation knows nothing of national boundaries. By Genesis chapter 10, we have the emergence and dispersion of nations. Now, it's interesting because that took place after Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, when they were dispersed throughout. But the chapter before the Tower of Babel actually shows where all the nations went. And if you follow, as as I do, the Hebrew scholar Bruce Walke on this, he says that Genesis 10 is placed out of sequence. It's called a dyschronologization, if you want to slip that into a party conversation sometime. It's placed out of sequence in order that the nations are under the grace and blessing of the Noah covenant of Genesis 9 and not under the judgment of Babel in Genesis 11. So you've got God's covenant in chapter 9, then you have the story of disobedience and dispersion in chapter 11. But the author of Genesis places the list of the nations after the blessing, not after the curse. Now, if I was to ask you about who the headline characters are In the first couple of books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus. Who are some of the headline characters in Genesis and Exodus? Just shout them out Abraham. Anyone else? Moses. Anyone else? Isaac, Jacob. And after that, you have Joseph. Okay, so three characters. We'll go look Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. What do we find out? Who were they? One was an immigrant. One was a trafficked slave and one was a nomadic exile. Those are, the, those are the fathers of the faith. Interesting, isn't it? If you look at the law and what it says uh, about the, the sojourner uh, and the immigrant, uh, the reason uh, that... that that there is so much about that is that the the Levitical laws are full of instructions to look after the immigrant or sojourner. These guys were ever presently in Israelite society from the beginning and under the law they were given special rights and protection which we will come to uh, in a moment. The reason for that is that Israel themselves had been immigrants in Egypt uh, Rabbi Sachs says, they learned from the inside what it was like to be an outsider. Often God achieved his purposes, his redemptive purposes, through outsiders. People like Rahab the Canaanite, Ruth the Moabites. See that in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. Solomon's vision for the temple <coughs> was that it would be a place for the foreigner to find and worship the living God, 1 Kings 8. Whenever they come from the other nations, may they hear your great name here. And the extent to which immigrants were part of the fabric of Israel society can be seen in 2 Chronicles 2, 17 and 18. Were in the list of all these people that were part of Israelite society. There is a list, a mention made of the foreigners and the sojourners. In the wisdom literature... A characteristic of their righteous life um, uh, is that they look after the stranger. Job says in in chapter 29, I took up the case of the stranger. Whereas in Psalm 94, uh, a characteristic of the wicked is that they slay the widow and the foreigner. So it's a, a case of what counts as righteous behavior and what counts as unrighteous behavior. In the Prophets, For some of the prophets they spoke into the context of exile Uh, as Israel had been saved from exile in Egypt so they would soon face a second exile in Babylon. Others spoke about how true religion was how you treat the displaced people in your midst. People like Micah in chapter 4 or Isaiah in chapters 56 or chapter 60 spoke of the nations coming to Israel as a sign and characteristic of the final kingdom. And then if we move to the Gospels, we have the ministry of Christ. His mission from the beginning was going to have a place for the outsider. His manifesto uh, in uh, Luke chapter 4 name-checked significant Old Testament outsiders who found a place in God's purposes. There were many lepers in Israel, but it was Naaman who was healed. There were many widows in Israel, but it was a widow of Zarephath that was touched. And Jesus' interactions, he reached out to, he healed, he commended the faith of non-Israelites. We think of the tenth leper, the only one who said thank you, who was a foreigner. We think of the Phoenician woman. We think of Jesus' comments in Matthew uh, 8 where he talks about them coming from the east and the west to take their seats in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is going to be filled with people of all nations. And especially with regard to the Samaritans, the despised immigrants of his day. He showed grace and mercy where others did not. In Luke 9, James and John wanted to throw petrol bombs at them and burn them, uh, you know, burn them off the streets because they wouldn't let them march down through Samaria. Jesus turned around and rebuked them. In Luke chapter 10, the parable of the good Samaritan, John 4, the, the Samaritan woman. And what about the person of Jesus himself? the archetype of the displaced person, the divine immigrant, forsaking his rights and privileges and journeying to a people who are going to reject him, where he was going to live as somebody who, quote, had nowhere to lay his head, Matthew 8.20, who was a refugee in his own infancy in Matthew 2, who identified with the unwelcome stranger in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. And then the church The church grew precisely because people were able to travel across the known world. I had a friend who said to me, isn't it fascinating that sometimes the very Christians who are praying for visas to be offered and borders to be opened so that they can go to other countries to spread the gospel are the very people who are praying that visas be not offered and that borders be shut to prevent people coming to us. The church was able to experience ease of travel through what was called the Pax Romana of the time. It was like the first century Schengen Agreement, whereby you were able to go across national boundaries. And the church grew as a result of that. Uh, Peter's designation of the church as aliens and strangers described the pilgrim nature of the church. Our citizenship is nowhere here on earth but in heaven, Philippians 3. The whole book of First Peter is about the fact that our citizenship ultimately is not here. And then at the very end, in Revelation, among the images of the final kingdom is one of multicultural cohabitation of the nations. The Lamb receives the glory and honour of the nations in Revelation 21. Vinath Ramachandra from IFE says, This eschatological horizon, this vision of the end, should keep Christians from presumption. We don't know which aspects of any culture, including our own, are going to be in heaven. So, it stops us being culturally superior. Well, one of the most important things uh, in coming to terms and coming to grips with this subject is understanding what the Bible means when it talks about the foreigner. Because there are verses in the Old Testament that tells you to keep away from foreigners. That the the presence of foreigners is a sign of God's judgment. So what do we do with that in comparison with other verses that tell us to welcome the foreigner? Well, it's important to understand that there are three different words to describe foreigner in the Hebrew. And sometimes they're simply... translated as foreigner in our bible which may not be that helpful because they're very different connotations there's the term ger and there's the words nokri and "zar." the ger was entitled under the law uh, to many uh, advantages uh, the ger was someone who was from another place who was a resident foreigner They were given basic rights. They were to be welcomed and protected alongside widows and orphans. The Nokri or the Tsar is foreigner in the terms of strange or unfitting. Something that we would say is foreign to us might have a moral or uh, simply uh, an, an ethical dimension. Or it may just mean that it's not part of our culture. Apologies to anyone who likes sushi but I would say that sushi is foreign, is free to my digestive system. Uh, I, you know, I would say that rap music is free or foreign to my musical taste. So it's something that just doesn't gel or doesn't belong uh, with who we are. Stranger unfitting. And very often the nockery or the czar were political enemies. And the primary reason why Israelites were told to separate from them was that they introduced foreign gods. Gods that were strange, gods that were against Yahweh. And actually, nokri can refer to idolatry even among the Israelites, or apostasy among the Israelites. It doesn't have to apply to someone who's from somewhere else. We can all be guilty of nokri behavior. So let's look first of all, at the Gare, because they had these rights within the Old Testament covenant. Uh, they had the right to tithes, to Sabbath rest, to access to cities of refuge. And in other words, you could see that that meant that they were entitled to work, to fair wages, to good working conditions, and to protection and security. That's what that means. God's love for the Gare is specifically stated in Deuteronomy 10. Uh, he protects them in Psalm 146. It was expected that they would come and worship him in Leviticus 17 and in Deuteronomy 20:26. 20, 26. God says, um, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And since God's people were called to love God with all their heart, they need to love what God loves. If you love God, you're to love the gear. Love them as you love yourself. Don't withhold justice from them, Deuteronomy 27. Specifically, employers were told to ensure that the gare's wages were paid on time. They weren't to take advantage of them. Very interesting, isn't it, in that sort of economy, that they had to be treated just like everybody else. In terms of the Nokri or the Tsar, the relationship is different. These were people who were generally oppressors. <clears throat> they were foreigners because they had invaded uh, uh, Israel, Jeremiah 51. It was a sign of God's judgment on Israel in lamentations. They would inevitably impose idolatry or they would seduce the people into idolatry in Jeremiah 3 or 1 Samuel 7. Or they would seduce them into intermarriage. Which resulted at best in a spiritual coldness or syncretism, and at worst into apostasy. See that in 1 Kings 11 and Ezra 10 and Nehemiah 13. But this is not a verse against interracial marriage. No, it is, it is a verse against apostasizing. Because in the culture of that time, um, you know, if, if somebody from another nation married an Israelite and came to know Yahweh, then they became an Israelite, they were no longer foreign. But when the Bible talks about marrying foreign women or taking foreign wives, it was the implication that they had stopped being Israelites and that they had not just embraced this person, but they'd embraced their worldview, they'd embraced their God, they'd embraced their worship. So it's not about interracial marriage, it's about idolatry. But Nokri is also, as I said, a word with more moral than ethnic dimensions. It applies to Israelites whose behavior was wayward and foreign to how the people of God should behave. Uh, the, the, the stranger or moral woman in, in Proverbs one to nine is a nokri, but it's, it means wayward. There's nothing there about her, her, her ethnicity. She was probably Israelite. It is important not to take verses that imply a separation from or an opposition to the Nakri, and apply them to advocate a separation from the Ger, from the immigrant, from the, from the refugee. So to summarize, in the past, Israel were Gerim in, in Egypt. We also see the start of the Book of Ruth where Naomi went and was a refugee in a foreign land and yet God's purposes were worked out there. And similarly, the foreigners that now reside amongst the Israelites were people who had abandoned their homelands as economic migrants or political refugees. And they sought sanctuary and security among God's people. And the fact that they chose Israel for sanctuary was seen as a positive blessing. These people have come to you. Wonderful. A foretaste of the way it's going to be at the end. Micah 4, 1-5, when all the nations come to the mountain of the Lord. And then... In the present, when the Old Testament was being written and the, the, the law was being given, the Gerim were an integral part of the population, Second Chronicles 2. One writer has said in daily life there was to be no barrier between the Ger and the Israelite. And the reason for that is that Israel were going to have to learn in the future that they had no divine right to their own country in perpetuity, regardless of their obedience. In fact, they would be exiled again. But the final kingdom vision was going to involve all the nations. Not with Israel conquering or subjugating the nations, but with Israel welcoming the nations. And there, fascinatingly, even there, the Nakri could be converted. And have a place in his final kingdom. Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8. Where he talks about people coming to hear the great name of the Lord. It's actually nocri. That's uh, the word there. And then in, uh, in, in Isaiah 56. He says. Let no foreigner nocri who is bound to the Lord say the Lord will exclude me from his people. That even the nocri can become bound to the Lord. And be part of his people. You remember a couple of years ago, the uh, Paris attacks on the Charlie Hebdo magazine, and there was a, a movement for everybody to say, Je suis Charlie. Well, I guess the biblical message here is that the Bible is telling us to say, Je suis guerre." We are all Gerim on God's earth. It's interesting, isn't it? Leviticus 25:23 says this. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is whose, not yours. The land is mine, says the Lord. And you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. He's saying that to his own people. And then a wonderful verse in in Psalm 39, 12. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, as a ger, a stranger, as all my ancestors were. It's interesting, isn't it? That the biblical message is that at root we are all refugees on this land, on this world, in this land. So when you hear people saying, our country, our way of life, our nation, really? Folks, this is not our country, it's God's. This is not our land. God has given it to us. This is not our standard of living. It is something God has graciously granted us to have as a gift that can be here and can be removed that we have no divine right to. The Israelites were to love the Gayer not just because of their Egyptian experience but because fundamentally they were also in their own land, Gerim and sojourners. They were stewards of God's earth. And that of course is expanded in the New Testament in 1 Peter 2 where we're told to live evangelistically as foreigners to show and to demonstrate by our attitudes and actions that we hold lightly to the things of this world. We travel light. So then, what is the contemporary application for this? Well, first of all, I think it's fair to say that we have to differentiate between personal moral imperatives that are binding on us as individual believers and that, between that and government responsibilities. As Christians, as citizens, as individuals, we are to show compassion, hospitality and justice, to love the stranger, advocate for them and witness to them. Governments also have to work for justice. But part of justice is balancing that with the responsibility to do justice for everyone, including their own citizens. And therefore you have the development of policies, whatever they look like, that need to at least factor in issues of security, law, order, and quotas, etc. <clears throat> However, democratic governments are elected by the people, And often reflect the desires and aspirations of the people. It's the responsibility of Christians to speak prophetically to governments through campaigns and advocacy if they feel that government policy is ignoring the plight of the refugee, for example, in favour of big business interests or militarism. So it's a very different issue to say we're having this foreign policy, we're having this immigration policy out of the need to balance issues of justice across the board. And it's a difference between saying that and saying we're having this immigration policy because, frankly, we're enthralled to big business and militarism. We also need to avoid and oppose irresponsible rhetoric. There's a dark side to the immigration debate. Yes, at one level, I understand those who say... It is lazy and it is counterproductive to brand anybody who raises the issue of immigration a racist. That's nonsense. There needs to be some sort of immigration policy. It needs to be debated in the public sphere. But there's a dark side to it, we have to admit, don't we? One that excuses and deals in generalisations and stereotypes. It exposes racism and is concerned only with economic self-interest. Phrases like, those people, they're all the same. All Muslims are terrorists. They're lazy, they're taking our jobs. Without seeing the irony that those two things are probably contradictory. If they were so lazy, they wouldn't be you know, over here taking your jobs and being prepared to do the work that many Irish people are too lazy or too snobby to do. So oppose and recognise the uh, irresponsible rhetoric. Also recognize the weaknesses of what I call political myopia. And that's just looking short-sightedly at one issue. Dogmatic protectionism. Seeking to protect an idealized British or Irish way of life by excluding others. Because that actually in the long term stagnates a nation. Oh, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because I feel that if Mr. Trump really wanted to make America great again, he should look back at what made America great. And one of the things that made America great was the immigration and the uh, diversification of those uh, early centuries. It's interesting in Jeremiah 48, verse 11. Part of God's judgment on Moab was, quote, they had sat on their dregs too long. Now what they meant, what meant there was the images of wine and wine that has gone off because it hasn't been mixed, it hasn't been moved. And Moab, you see, unlike a lot of the other nations around them, Moab never experienced displacement. Moab basically became insular. They were like bad wine. They hadn't been enriched by mixing and mingling. On the other hand, diversity enriches a nation and helps it to flourish. I think we also need to balance questions of humanity and mercy with, with uh, questions of legality and justice for all. What about the hard issues? The grey areas? Clearly criminal activities that use lenient immigration laws to proliferate. Uh, for example, in... The UK and Ireland here, some of these are bogus language schools, sham marriages, benefit tourism, human trafficking, terrorist threats. It's a matter of justice that those activities are eradicated, not just for the well-being of us and existing citizens, but for the sake of the many genuine refugees who could find themselves deprived of justice because of the activity of a few. The motives... And the circumstances of a small minority of immigrants. And the motives and agenda of some governments. Shouldn't take precedence over how we as God's people are called. To treat those who reside amongst us as neighbours. So let me encourage you to pray for governments and policy makers. That they would know wisdom and act justly. Let me encourage you to advocate and act on behalf of the vulnerable. To do it voluntarily through your volunteer work or do it professionally through what God is calling you to be and to do, whether that would be in uh, in, in nursing, in, in aid work. I, I know people who are nurses, who are pilots, um, who are uh, medical researchers, uh, who are town planners, versing. All being able to use their gifts to deal with this global crisis because God has called them to use their vocation to help others. So, through campaigns, relief work, medical help, legal advice, there's a need for all these people to be used by the various agencies and societies that are seeking to deal with this unprecedented crisis. And let's seek to do what I would call change the wind. We can feel helpless in the face of vast human suffering. We may feel that we can do very little, but we might gradually be able to change the culture, change the wind of how people and communities view the outsider. I think we're all aware of how public opinion can suddenly and quickly and radically change on certain issues. And maybe as Christians we have found ourselves um, on the back foot and not knowing how to deal with that when public opinion changes against what we would traditionally believe. But we can use that positively in terms of the influence of social media, etc. Because government policies often play catch-up with changes in public opinion. We may not feel that we can change the attitude of a government ourselves, but we can help change the attitude of our peers, of our family, of our communities, and of our churches. If you're looking for practical help and steps, as I said, please do look at some of the agencies out in the exhibition hall. I won't mention one in case I, I get into trouble and not mention them all, but I did look, and I do know some of my colleagues out there, and many of them are doing work with refugees. Go and ask them about it. The Jubilee Centre uh, has a booklet that outlines eight projects that local churches have done. Uh, it starts by saying get the facts straight, do your research and look up and see exactly what the problem is and the causes of it. Engage with local media and be a voice on local radio or in local newspapers calling attention to this. Offer English language classes again very often in our work with international students which is a massive part of what we're uh, doing in CUI through uh, my colleague Holly Tagley, who did a seminar earlier on uh, in in the week. Uh, English language classes have been an amazing help, not just to folks who are at third level education, but folks who are coming into language schools. Over 100,000 international students come to Dublin alone every year. Some maybe only for a couple of weeks, but some for much longer. Build inter-church relationships where maybe another church in your area is doing something. Uh, Don't replicate it. Go get involved with it. Set up an immigration advice service. Very often these people don't understand forms, don't understand the law, can be taken advantage of by bureaucracy. Be advocates for them. Provide practical support with meals and uh, with advice on schooling, etc. Extend hospitality. Uh, Open up your own home. Uh, it's been fascinating, particularly uh, around times maybe when a lot of the students have gone away. It's been great for us to look around and see that the people, and I know, for example, here in Coleraine, the local community have been doing this for years. When the students disappear back to their mummies and daddies to get their laundry done at weekends, um, the, uh, uh, the international students are left. You know, offer hospitality. Uh, share your faith and values in word and deed. Just uh, some possible... Um, uh, applications so I think it's maybe time to rethink first of all it may be time to rethink our missional focus listen to this quote from an IFES worker in the Middle East one of my, one of my colleagues in, 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 in the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students he's very uh, he, he, he's very challenging in what he says here in terms of our traditional missional focus on how we do mission. Think of the cost in time and money of sending a missionary from the West to the Arab world. Training, language, contextualization, giving them a living wage, the years it will take for them to be accepted, if at all, and often... And he's speaking from inside as an Arab, often for very limited fruit. Now compare that with the cost of befriending and investing in relational evangelism with some of the tens of thousands of Muslims coming to the West. It may simply involve just crossing the street. I think he's right. I'm not saying don't send people, but I'm asking for a bit of perspective and a bit of strategic thinking. So is it time to rethink our missional focus? Is it time to rethink our political focus? It's interesting that when I've been asked to do this seminar, it's usually worded something like this. Can you get us to think theologically about the immigration issues? Think theologically and practically about global migration and refugees. The reality is that it would actually be much harder. It's not difficult to find it, as as I've showed what, what the Bible says about immigrants and refugees. It would be much, much harder to research and to deliver a seminar on thinking theologically about border controls or the biblical basis for border controls. That's not to say that there should be none. I've examined a little bit of that. But simply to acknowledge that while the Bible says a lot about immigration and people movement, about welcoming sojourners and strangers and refugees and outsiders, it says little or nothing about border controls as we understand them. The emphasis in Scripture is on inclusion rather than exclusion, on inviting people to come Rather than on keeping them out. So, rethinking our missional focus, rethinking our political focus. And finally, what's at stake? What's at stake in this issue? Well, I believe that our attitude to this issue ultimately will reveal three things. It will reveal, first of all, how we understand the generosity of the gospel. Folks, we have a welcoming gospel. One that's for all nations. It's about taking what is not ours to begin with, the gospel, and offering it generously to others. Isn't that what evangelism is about? It's about taking what we had no right to, but we were given as a gift, and offering it to others. In the same way, our nationhood, our standard of living, our residence in a certain place, is not ours. But it's a gift of God. We are gerim. We are sojourners. Whenever I was studying Hebrew and trying to get a grasp of what this awkward word sojourner meant in the, in the, in the current context, the nearest I could find, because I was living in Canada at the time as a student, and the nearest parallel I could find was living on a student visa. Because when you're on a student visa, you can benefit from all of the, you know, the surroundings and the country and you can live there and enjoy its produce, but you have no ultimate rights. I couldn't vote. You know, so, you know, I I was never going to be a citizen there, but I enjoyed living there and I was able to appreciate it. And that's what God has given us on this earth, graciously given us many good things, but they're not ours in perpetuity. We have no divine right to them. So grasping on to what God has graciously given us in one area, you know, our our standard of living, and seeking to exclude others to protect that, folks, that's going to make it difficult or even impossible for us to be truly generous with the message of the gospel. Because if we have a grasping heart and a grasping mentality in that area, How generous are we really going to be with ourselves and the good news of Jesus Christ? So it will affect how we understand the generosity of the gospel. It will also affect how how well we know the heart and the character of God. Because we serve a God who has a heart that is always oriented towards a stranger. A God who is the supreme example of one who did not hold on to his own privileges but became a refugee on earth for us. And a God who calls us to love as he has loved. And a God who calls us to love what he loves. And it will also, I think, expose how committed we are to the kingdom of heaven. How much of our reticence to accept these strangers betrays an boundedness, A preoccupation with the kingdoms of this earth rather than the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, folks, is made up of people of all tribes and tongues. Get used to it. How many of the arguments that are always about economic or security issues lose sight of the fact that we're citizens of a different kingdom? Our security is ultimately not in our own government, but in God. That if we seek to hold on to all that we have, even life itself, then ultimately Jesus says we lose it. Because it's not ours to keep. But if we're prepared in holy generosity to give away what we have, even life itself, then doesn't Jesus say that's when we will actually in the end find true life. So I believe that this is an important and crucial issue. It's not marginal. It's all over the scriptures, and at the end, how we respond to this, will determine how generous we are with the gospel, how well we know the character of God, and how much we're committed to the kingdom of heaven. So that's all that I have to say at the moment on the subject. But uh, we do have some time for questions, um, and if I could encourage you, if you do have questions, just to uh, To speak up, and I'm going to repeat them for the sake of the microphone. I never know whether that means a) you're asleep, b) it's been all so clear that you understand it and you have no questions, or c) you're just dying to get to the coffee bar. So um, I have no idea what that means. So uh, we'll give a chance for one or two. Uh, I'm certainly available to chat afterwards, but. I, I normally run over time so this is actually a new experience for me. Uh, I hadn't expected this so uh, uh any uh, any questions? Yes, there's one here. Yeah. Uh the question was where does Brexit fit in with all of this? Uh yeah, I, I toyed with mentioning mentioning that as it's been one of the m- major uh, events uh uh, and it, it is incredibly complex. I, I, I think I saw somebody saying yesterday that uh, th- that Brexit was the unprepared trying to negotiate the undefined, you know, or something like that. Uh, and I, I mean at, at one level, whatever happens, and there are people who are very glad that 's the way they voted, they wanted the vote to come out. A lot of people are actually very angry and very fearful. Uh, about their future uh, in terms of what it will mean uh, for, for work and for everything else. Uh, but again, just to say, whichever way you voted and whatever happens, you know, it sounds simplistic, but the first thing to say is that God is still on his throne and since he doesn't recognize any borders, uh, whether we are in or out will not actually um, affect how we are to live. Uh, so the question, how do we live outside the European Union? Visually, uh, how do we live inside some new redefined uh, relationship? Um, certainly, at, at a very local level, it, it can be extremely complicating. I, I work for an all-Ireland organisation. Uh, I have one pocket of sterling, one pocket of euro, one northern phone, one southern phone, etc. Et it's going to be an utter pain for me, but that's, that's totally selfishly. Uh, And I think just for us all to examine our motivations and reasons, uh, I think there's no doubt that some people felt that there needed to be a radically reformed Europe because of how sometimes, you know, sovereign wishes of nations were not being taken into account. And I think a lot of people were certain, very few people were saying it didn't need to be reformed. Um, But if we voted to stay in purely for economic reasons and standard living rules, or if we voted to go out purely to protect our own borders, etc. I mean, there could have been very, very mixed motives on both sides for why people voted the way they did. Uh, and so my encouragement is that what pray for our governments and whatever emerges and whatever develops as a result of the next uh, year or so, that, that, that we will actually pray that maybe against expectations it will increase opportunities for gospel witness and for hospitality and for generosity. I think Northern Ireland is in a quite a unique situation here as it, as, because we have the land border with the, with the European Union. And so maybe even more so than England, Scotland or Wales, we will find ourselves maybe less affected in terms of the immigration and the presence of other nations amongst us Uh, and we shouldn't react against that we should see that as I said not as a crisis but as an opportunity Uh, and I think that we need to make the most of whatever comes out of this so I sort of steered away from mentioning it just because it is so unknown and so complex at the moment Um, but I know I am at a meeting next week to do with actually ironically with our international student ministry which is also all Ireland and it's on the agenda what are the various scenarios here will this Will this negatively affect our ability to minister to international students? Because, you know, we'll have to set up another organisation or something. So, let's just pray that it, that it won't it won't hinder that, but that we'll make the most of it. I mean, I'm, what do I see as the solution to the refugee crisis? If this is a whopper of an answer, I'll be getting a new job with the United Nations or something. So, uh, I mean, I, again, I'm speaking as someone who said, listen, God calls us to live this way. Let's live this way and, and really pray for those who have massive decisions to make about this. One thing I have thought about from listening to my colleagues on the front line is that take, take one example of the, the Syrian refugees at these camps that have built up on the Lebanese border. I mean, I would have thought it would be worth thinking but you know, about whether or not, rather than living in temporary dwellings for indefinite periods of times, whether or not there could be some thought given to basically new city planning and planting new towns around this border where people can have the facilities and infrastructure and giving international aid for that. In this day and age, it's not actually that difficult to plant a new town. Um, I've done a little bit of work in in what we would call the slums of India and seen people in there and how quickly they are able to radically improve the lot of people who have been displaced. At the time of the whole Commonwealth Games, whole communities were displaced outside Delhi. Uh, and how quickly they're able to rise up and build... Community. You know, perhaps they look like slums to us, but actually they're some of them are not too different from some urban areas in our, in our own country. So I would have thought that trying to, ease, uh, and issues of education, I mean, it struck me that they're saying it's not just food and blankets and water and people You know sometimes they're actually getting too much of that in certain of the camps, particularly in Greece. But <clears throat> teachers that can actually take the kids and, 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 and teach them because the, the, the Greek government doesn't have the resources for that. But sometimes through the churches and through uh, other parachurch and NGOs, they're, uh, they're allowing and enabling teachers to go in and actually help continue the kids' education. Um, there, there are so many levels. I mean, there has to be a political solution, an economic solution, a security solution, all of that. A change of regime in some of these countries could radically change it. And you, you know, a lot of these people do want to go home, once want, it's safe to go home. So I think we've got to recognise that as well. So, I mean, I have no easy answers. But I suppose I would say two things. For, for all of us um, to pray for those who are on the front line, to do what we can in our own country with those who have come to us, but also for those of you particularly young graduates who have gifts in in medicine and in education and in, in law and relief and all of that there, to seriously consider going and serving on the front line. Sorry, the the the... the, the woman's just talking about a, a ministry in Belfast in the city centre where they meet uh, foreign nationals every weekend that they go out and they're able to, to refer them. Uh, some some of these folks have been trafficked. Some of the, pe- the folks have got, have got nothing. They, they need advice. They need help. Able to um, uh, refer them to a ministry, which is in the Lisburn Road, the meeting point, uh, where it's 35 different nationalities. I, I'm familiar with that. It's excellent. It's exactly the right thing to do. Um, so, yeah, I mean acquaint yourself I talked about getting the facts right be aware of where these ministries are be aware of if you are involved as a local church or doing a ministry like in the centre of Belfast we have a similar one in Dublin where you're actually aware of where to refer people to and you've got a good working relationship and partnership with those um, with those organisations very very important okay well listen thank you so much for coming and uh I let you out a couple of minutes early and uh, let me just pray with you before we go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to learn together around your word uh, and and for the conversations we'll have uh, later as we digest some of this. We just pray for those who are in great need at the time, maybe some uh, not known to us but bound to be even in our own country who don't know where to turn next, who are at the end of their resources. We pray that we and Uh, those who are close to them in the churches and organizations and mission agencies would be given the strength and the energy and the resources by your spirit to minister for the gospel in these situations and for the worldwide crisis lord we pray for peace we pray for changes of uh, dictators and and difficult regimes that has caused this crisis so that there can be a renewal in these countries and that there can be again stability uh, in our world for we ask it in jesus name amen